1: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Tim Arrington. Tim is the Director of Research at the Center for Open Science, where he leads the center's meta-science research efforts. He and his team also conduct evaluations of initiatives intended to increase the openness, rigor, and reproducibility of research, such, such as open science badges and registered reports. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Great, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
1: Why don't we hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on meta science?
2: Absolutely. So my background is in the life sciences. So I started my uh, undergrad work at a small liberal arts college and um, did a double major in biology, chemistry. Um, and then I eventually took time off and worked in the lab. You know, kind of deciding whether it's going to be life science or medicine and really started enjoying uh, life science research. I started my my PhD at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, working on telomerase, actually, uh, which was a great topic. And I eventually left and finished my PhD at the University of Virginia, uh, which is in Charlottesville, where I am now. And during that time, when I shifted and went to UVA and started working um, in in my eventual PhD thesis uh, advisor's lab, especially when I first, I think really started running into the issues of reproducibility and around kind of that, accumulative nature of knowledge, uh, kind of how we accumulate knowledge and how well we do that and communicate that. Right. And the illustration I have is when I first started my work. Um, first thing I did was pick up a project that just got published in, in cell. So a top top uh, journal in the life sciences right. and wanted to replicate those experiments. And I was in the lab that published it and I could talk to the person who was the lead author. And it still took me six months to figure it out. Um, And it was going, not just the methods that were in the paper, kind of digging through all the lab notebooks and kind of really thinking through carefully with this person to try to reconstruct what was one of those key figures in that finding. And that kind of stuck with me for a long time. And actually at that same moment is when the pharmaceutical uh, uh, industry, uh, namely Bayer and Amgen, started kind of publishing their own white papers saying, we're having a hard time you know, kind of replicating key findings from the academic literature. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of things translate the way that we hope to, um, and that kind of really resonated with me. So, right after I was finishing my PhD, I learned about a new center that was in Charlottesville that was just forming. I had no idea. I was just excited because I was like, "Wow, it's in Charlottesville. That's where okay. is this?" Right um and i remember going into the office and meeting brian nozick who's our ceo who um, is a professor of psychology at, at the university of virginia so very different backgrounds hadn't bumped into each other beforehand and pretty sure i sat went in the office uh, There was like nobody there it's just brian in, in one little room and just chatted with him for a long time just about kind of my own background my interests what, what they were doing and was just really excited after that conversation, just to be a part of it. And was really excited when he turned around and called me and was just like, well, do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to lead this project in in preclinical cancer biology, which was, which is my own background? So my interest sparked largely from my own kind of struggles, trying to be able to replicate and understand uh kind of how we mm-hmm. how we gather evidence. So
0: when you when you say that um you work in meta science, that I mean, you work in the metaverse and you're on Second Life all day long with the VR helmet on,
1: is that correct? Doing science <laughs> that's, that's, in the metaverse, yeah. That's
2: right. <laughs> yeah, Oh, not at all. Actually, it's really fun <laughs> to, to people trying to understand what that is, right? Like, what is what is it? Like, what do you do? Um, and especially when I, when I talk about my own background uh, in life science, like in, in doing laboratory bench work, right? Those videos you see of like beakers and everything. And they're like, so is that what you do? And I was like, no, actually, I sit in front of a computer all day. Um, Really, What I'm more interested in now is not, it's actually studying you. I'm trying to figure out what you're doing and how how we conduct our research. Um, And what I find the most enjoyable part of it is that completely cross-disciplinary background, right? I get to talk to people from the social sciences, the physical sciences, the life sciences, chemical sciences, and it's just, we all speak slightly different languages, but it's super fun to stitch it together and realize, well, we're actually saying the same thing about the scientific process. We're just using slight deviations of how we implement it.
1: Okay. Well, let's uh, let's keep with that a little bit. And and why don't you step back and talk to us about the mission of the Center for Open Science and what meta-science is more broadly? Like what, what's the process of trying to uh, translate the different ways of speaking about science look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the Center for Open Science is a nonprofit and based in the United States in Virginia. Uh, it was founded in 2013 by Brian Nozick, uh, like I just mentioned. And our mission's very broad and open-ended, right? To increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of scientific research, it's agnostic to discipline. Um, We do that through three main activities. Uh, One is meta-science, I'll I'll get into that in a second. One is doing policy work, advocating for kind of shifting the landscape of incentives, uh, working with journals and funders and institutions to try to align our scientific values uh, with our scientific practices, that incentive system. And then the third arm we do is to take advantage of technology, uh, even right now, right, being able to talk digitally, uh, a lot of research still does not take advantage of the technology that we have today, so a lot of what we're developing is uh, infrastructure, free infrastructure for researchers, our flagship is the open science framework to enable more open reproducible practices, or at least to hope to. Uh, so, meta science research—the uh, way I view it—is is very much that it's the study of how science is conducted and disseminated. I think those are the two key pieces to meta science research. Um, so, really trying to understand the way that researchers in different disciplines, but in many ways agnostic to it, are and like what how they're incentivized to act a certain way, right? So a big piece of it is those stakeholders, that ecosystems, because it's a systems problem, right? So I'm a person, that's in the end of it, that's really what's going on, right? As we're studying people, because scientists are humans, even though they're trying their hardest not to have an influence and a bias in the system, they're inevitably human. And so they're prone to those, those influences and those incentives. So what is really exciting about meta MetaScience is to try to understand kind of, not just what and how we act, but actually can we change that behavior, right? Can we actually shift uh, the behaviors and the norms of a culture towards you know kind of those ideals. Um, at least that's that's the mission that the Center for Open Science is, is uh, utilizing meta science for. And well, then,
0: there's uh, a there's a natural tendency to uh, to try to skew things in favor of the person that's funding your project. I mean they they have certain expectations, and so how do you go about separating that out so that um, that there's not too
2: much um, of the wrong type of influence and you're talking about that and more broad or are you trying to say that specifically towards the center
0: no i'm just in broad broad terms yeah
2: yeah it's a really good point i think it's really easy to well as humans right chase chase money uh it's a, it's a good driver so i think part of it is to make sure you know where they're coming from. Do you understand what or do you think you understand what those biases are? I think that's one of the first steps probably is to understand uh, whether it's uh, straightforward or not, whether that funder um, and whether you're aligned with that funder's expectations. Um, so that'd be step one, which is maybe just be aware of who you're talking to and where you're receiving your funds from. I think the most critical thing is to make sure that their policies are not influencing you. I think actually. And the reason I say that is sometimes they can have kind of very directive efforts, right? Funders do have one of the biggest levers in the system because what they fund, or more importantly, probably what they don't fund really dictates the way that research, uh, the whole research enterprise works. So I think being aware of the funder, and then I think having them and working with them on policies that try not to influence your design uh, are probably the two biggest things. After that, then you're left with just disclosure you're going to have to disclose the fact that that it's good to know where your funding's come, just like it's good to know what other um, kind of conflicts of interest you as a researcher have.
1: Right. Could you talk to us a little bit about the open science framework? Because I imagine that you've got more concrete steps. I mean, it's, it's a nice thing to say, like, well, just try not to let it influence you. But, you know, like that, that that's an easy thing to say. I mean, what, what are the concrete steps that researchers have to take in order to not let the source of their funding uh, subtly nudge them towards getting the right answer? Yes, yeah, subtly. <laughs>
2: I like that. Um, Yeah, I think one of the actions that are the best for it that is what we're hoping for will increase in disciplines uh, is really only mandated in one is this concept of pre-registration. So declare what you're going to do before you know the results. It's the best way to not just worry about the conflicts from a funder, but to worry about your own bias as a researcher. So especially in confirmatory research, anything that we're going to make some prediction about when it's time to design your experiment both to increase rigor and decrease this conflict, this potential conflict, is just basically put your cards on the table, is to say, what am I testing? What do I, what do I kind of value as my diagnostic test? It could be the P value, right? Less than P, less than 0.05 is totally fine. Uh, as long as you are stating it up front and doing it before you know those results. Once you see those results, then I think the, the influences are very high. Now, I think there's another aspect that could happen just as well outside of the framework to help with this conflict of interest, and that would be having peer review of that um, by people independent from that funder. So the more eyes I think we can have on research that hold researchers and funders accountable earlier in the process is probably better than later in the process, right? By the time the research is done, at that point, we're just kind of fighting over the results and the influence and the bias for doing it at the design stage, it's a lot nicer.
1: How, how much time does that add to the process of get, getting an experiment off the ground and done? It's, it seems like that overhead is pretty extensive.
2: Yeah, well, so this is, this is a really good question you're asking because what you're really trying to get at is how much more time does it take to do something that we think might potentially save us more time in the long run? Sure. So right. I don't, I'd love to do that experiment, right? Which is to let things run in parallel similar designs, one, having it front-loaded, pre-registration, peer review of that pre-registration before you do the experiment, basically beating up the design even more and then just letting the experiment run and finding the result versus I just keep doing experimentation until I find a result that fits, you know, fits the model that right. I'm looking for. Um, I don't know, so I do, it, it will take more time. It takes more time by the researcher. It takes more time by peer review if you have that involved in the process to do it up front. So definitely know that that's true. But what we don't know is, does it take us and more time overall or are we more efficient overall? Because essentially what we're trying to do is to navigate potential dead ends early. And probably more importantly, is to come up with the most rigorous designs so at least we learn something at the end. I think what happens a lot is that you see iteration of experiments. Um, so I conduct an experiment. It doesn't work out. I say, ah, I should have known that. If I just talked to somebody. I could have come up with a better design. Or even worse, I do the whole experiment. I publish it. Not a not a great design. Really small sample size. Highly biased, and it's not replicable. Well, does that really save us time if we're going to have to go back to the start again?
1: Right, right, right.
2: Good question. I don't know the answer uh, except for practically now as an individual. Yeah, it takes a little bit more time in the front end.
1: Yeah, I think it's just important to remember that knowledge takes a lot of work, and if you build a, an edifice of knowledge on really rotten foundations, then the demolition process is going to set you back a long time too. And I mean, you have people who, uh, meta scientists such as yourself, who do you know meta meta reviews of all the the studies they can find in all these different fields, and say like the median studies shouldn't exist. And, and arguably the median researcher shouldn't even be in the field, like that there should just be a lot fewer people doing more stuff. Are are you, are you that pessimistic or do do you have a rosier view of the state of science?
2: Yeah, I have a little bit rosier view. Um, and and I mostly have a rosier view because I think that, yes, I, I do agree that having, a proper investment in the research that we do is more critical. So I just put a lot of funds and just do more and more of the same. I, I couldn't agree more, right? You you will get what you incentivize. You will get the smallest unit that might not be the quality you want. You get lots and lots of quantity in that case. The same note, I'm a little bit rosier in that sense because I th- I don't think anyone's There are some, but I don't think most researchers are doing this on purpose, right? I think it is completely an incentive system that there are really, really good researchers out there. And in some ways, I think we're losing good researchers because of the incentive system. I've seen a lot of good researchers not stay in research in the way that we think, it, whether it's academia or industry, because they didn't get that big paper. So I think that's that's the true problem is that we're, we're kind of rewarding kind of quick science, sometimes sloppy science on purpose or not. And we're kind of disenfranchising those really good researchers. Um, yeah.
1: Well, you you have that publisher parish dynamic, and, and I want to dig in a little bit more to the incentive. So so Thomas raised a good point about funding, but that's not the only problem, right? In the incentive structure facing researchers. So uh, the as I understand, and I'm not an academic or a researcher, but as I understand it, uh, like your career kind of lives and dies with your publishing record. Um, and it's, it's one of the main factors that go into it. And it's, it's, you know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how that might be problematic. So do you have an alternative model for establishing a research career and furthering a research career that doesn't, that doesn't trade so much on this one metric, like your, your H index or the citations you get or something like, there's just so many ways to game that and so much reason to do so. How do we fix that problem in the, the sort of broader incentive landscape?
2: Yeah, that's the ultimate question. Um, so I, I I don't know a clean answer to that, but I do think a more portfolio approach is the way to go. Uh, And and you're seeing some funders kind of toying with this. I think the trick here is, is... the whole the whole system has to work right so if you shift the system and i as a researcher don't like that but i'm now in charge of reviewing other researchers careers i'm going to have a hard time i'm going to go back to my default uh, where's my cell science nature paper how many did you get right how high impact are they so i think the risk is we keep defaulting so even if we come up to a good one it's still a system's problem in terms of making sure all actors are there but i'm a big fan of reuse so um, that's, and in many ways, that's what the citation was meant to do, right? Number of citations and then impact factor indirectly trying to get at that. I Even mean, though it's a horrible mechanism because you can go far into that if you've ever had a speaker into the utility of citations, how accurate they are or are not. But you t- what I really think is more of the paper is not really the product, right? The product is probably more the data or the intellectual property or, or the the. Some something of utility, something that was made um, and that something made doesn't have to be a physical object all the time. Right. It can be a digital object. And I think that's actually what we want to see more of. So citations, I think, have a hard time of doing that. The more that we can get at towards sharing that raw product, say data, as a cleanest example, I publish a paper and I publish my data alongside it. I actually would like to see two things. One, more emphasis on that openness. And right. the rigor of the design. And two, more emphasis on that utility. Did you just produce a data set that was really open and really great, but nobody really wanted to use it? Yeah, maybe they'll cite your paper, but they're not citing actually what you produce. They're not, not, not citing the real scholarship behind it. Um, so I'm actually more interested in that, building off of that and and being able to use the the products of the research that are the real products, not the paper itself.
1: We uh so we, my, my, we just I, I, I want to get this in. Hold on, I just I, I want to make this connection while it's still fresh. We we just interviewed um, Joel Chan for episode forty nine, and uh, you really ought to check it out because he's done a lot of work on this this question of what the the unit of research actually is, and and the way we conceptualize it and reward it today, we treat it as if the whole paper is kind of the unit, and that's that's what your entire career is geared towards producing. And he says, no, the the unit is actually the concepts. Or the, the the conceptual structure, or the individual arguments, the chains of reasoning. So, so there's a lot of there's a lot to the paper. But what really matters is the novel part of your argument, or the summation of an entire body of work. And that what the way he approaches this this task of meta science and trying to uh, do this process better is, is to try to find infrastructural ways of making that easier, uh, of querying papers for concepts, querying p- papers for ideas, and not necessarily treating it as a monolith that um that you increment upwards, like the count of which you increment upwards is a sort of summation of your career if that makes sense
2: yeah it does and and i want to definitely check that out because i've been drifting more and more towards the concept that papers the way that we see them not the academic papers really they are really dr have always been human to human and that really what you want to get at is to be able to leverage the continuing growing wealth of information yes. that we're producing is to treat it more at its at its more you know finite units that actually enables really cool like machine learning and ai on top of it that's what that's what his lab is doing
1: that's what his lab is doing yeah
2: yeah and i'm so much more convinced that we have a program with um darpa that we're part of called score systemizing confidence and open research and evidence and it's essentially geared at the same mechanism right towards how do i understand the credibility of papers but really it's not the papers. It's the claims within the papers. Right. It's the same thing, right? I need to distill that down and the the then evidence each yeah. one. Exactly. Right.
1: So, so that will probably come out in a month or so. Yeah. Yeah. Be on the lookout for, I'll, I'll send it to you if, if I remember. Sorry, yeah, Thomas, be- Thomas, go ahead.
0: Um, Yeah. My, my wife has been wrestling with cancer for the last five years and um there's been Um, A number of cancer studies throughout the years. And there's something like 184 papers that have been published where people have claimed to have cured cancer in mice, and um, and it doesn't translate into humans. Um, So naturally, you start questioning this whole approach. I mean, how many more mice do we have to save to prove that it's not a valid way of approaching this?
2: Yeah, no, um, yeah, that's a really important topic, and you know the way I, I think about it is there's two, a lot of things, but two main ways that I think why we fail to translate over to that huge divide from say animal preclinical over into human. One would be lack of knowledge. That's always going to be there, right? We're humans. We're we're right. trying our best. We're going to lack something. So I'm convinced that that's a big piece of it. I'm just as convinced that actually potentially now a bigger piece is it's not even, we're not even trying. We're misaligned, right? We're not doing really rigorous reproducible research. We're not talking to clinicians as preclinical researchers all the time either, right? So I could be designing this great experiment in mice with a model that I believe is really good, but you know what it is? It's a model that's convenient for me.
0: It's Mm -hmm. not a model
2: that actually mimics the disease. So by the time it gets over to the clinic, it's actually not very useful because we we went the wrong direction. We took convenience. It's actually why you see huge biases in the type of research we have, even just the sex, right? There's tons on, on male, very, very little on, on women. And that's purely as a result of, you know, convenience, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So yeah. I'd love to do an experiment to actually test that, right? Like, are we able to translate more efficiently if we actually beat it up earlier in the process? When you think of like a whole drug discovery process, right? Um, it is a bit of a a game you have to play, right? When you start from drug screens all the way out to eventually hoping to get a phase three successful trial that results in in something that's going to go to market, hopefully stays in market. And usually at this point, it's really well known. You can like check it out for almost any given area of research and you can tick all the numbers from, you know, the drug discovery all the way down through the pipeline. And most of these fail horribly at the phase two level, which is when you start to look at efficacy in humans, Um, And the common approach is to shove more into the system, right? Just keep feeding it. Okay, well, uh, the rate's only 5% at that one stage. So we're going to have to do 1000 more drug targets. I guess that's true. I think the other one is, well, maybe we should be actually making sure that we're efficient and increase our efficiency across the the pipeline, right? As we move through, are we just, you know, kind of, are we lucky or are we actually trying to get uh, rigor out of it? So to me, those are intertwined, right? Like sometimes people can say it's a lack of knowledge and I think that's true. I think sometimes it's also a rush to first human. And actually I get, that kind of upsets me a bit because I think if we rush to first human, and it turns out that we didn't really need to do that, yes, I do believe that we need to be able to hurry up therapies, but I do worry about false hope, right? Like right. if it wasn't actually the right thing to do, then why did we do that? Why did we invest at that moment when we could have waited a little bit longer and then, then the right investment?
1: Right. Uh, it, it reminds me of the, the story of the, uh, the police officer who sees a, a drunk man looking for his keys in the, the lamplight in the parking lot. And he asks, why are you looking there? Like the keys obviously aren't here. And he says, this is where the light is. Right. So you just, you kind of go where it's easiest to go. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to whether or not the problems in science are even across different disciplines. So, I mean, just I have an outsider's perspective. It it seems like it would be harder to bullshit your way through physics than than it would a a standard social science experiment. But maybe that's not the case. Is it is it evenly distributed throughout different scientific scientific disciplines or does it tend to be concentrated in a couple of uh, disciplines where it's a little bit easier to p-value hack or do something similar?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. I'm sure, you know, people can give you their own anecdotal evidence. It's not as if we know with high confidence what those rates are across disciplines very much. And even if you have, like, there's caveats left and right. I think what's probably more interesting, and it's really what you're getting at, too, is, is that they're, they're also at states, different states of maturity and different ways of operating. Right. So take physics. It's a great one, especially. And again, there's pros and cons to this. So um, some physics experiments are huge, enormous. Uh, and they have super high thresholds. They do a great job of blinding themselves and having the team separated. I'm a huge fan of that. But at the same note, like there's only a couple places you can do this, right? Like you need like these huge multi-million dollar instruments. So I hope they're not. And there's huge teams that essentially help hopefully hold themselves in check. At the same note, like I wouldn't be surprised at the fringe of in the physical sciences, just like I know it happens in chemistry, right? There's certain, a lot of chemistry, organic, organic chemistry is a good example of this, where you can have, very questionable practices. Exaggeration to me is just as dangerous as, oh, I, I can't find the finding. To me, it's the utility of the finding. It's just as valuable. So if I sit here and say, oh, look, I you know produced some brand new compound, some new, chemi- some new chemical pathway to isolate some compound, and I got this really, really amazing efficiency, right? It's amazing, it's groundbreaking. And then somebody else tries to go back through it and they're like, no, I can get it, <laughs> but not the efficiency you had. To me, it's the same thing with in my own field in, in biology, right? Which is, you're like, oh, great, I can I can you know stop a cancer cell from dividing. Well, shoot, I got the the potency wrong, right? Like right. that's not really going to be useful when I get to the clinic. So I think that's part of it, right? Is that application they, they vary a little bit um, in terms of their maturity as well as the utility of the disciplines.
1: So so that suggests a good follow up. I wanted to ask you about this. We spent most of our time talking about replication and from what I gather most of your work is on replication, but there are probably other problems in, in science just besides the the replication crisis. So so what are the other issues that are kind of uh, afflicting the field in general?
2: Yeah, yeah there's a lot. So one that I think's related to replication is I'm quite interested in is lack of I say null findings it's really more lack of process right lack of what what is really going on so especially as you get outside disciplines that are like well regulated so in clinical trials we have a, a lot better handle on we know how many trials are going on and what's being designed and what the outcomes are mostly because it's mandated by law still lots of improvements to occur but we understand what's going on as you get farther and farther away from kind of mandates i don't, I don't know if people really know as in a research community even just a subslice, what's really going on um, around them um, and it's not you know, it's not saying like, oh, it's replicable or not. It's really this bias and it's not even publication bias. I think it's more of selective reporting at a really weird level. So a good example of this is in grad school. Um, There was this one follow up finding I had, right? Some one one exciting finding, we kind of followed it, did all the things that we do in our lab and nothing exciting came out of it. So we didn't even bother trying to publish. They didn't even communicate about it. It was just, I don't even know if anybody knows about it, but what was interesting is it bumped up to a whole nother field that we never really bothered to engage. And we were trying to figure out like, well, what's exciting here, right? Like what's the story to tell? And the story to tell was there's this connection that we have no idea what's going on. Two biological compounds are connected. We don't know what's going on. And to me, the shame is nobody knows that. In fact, I, I'm sure today still nobody knows that. And that I think is, is a real big problem because that means that the investments that we're putting into science, we're, we're kind of wasting effort. And we're not wasting effort because it's not replicable, we're wasting effort because we're not talking. And I'm not worried at this stage, I think that we need to worry about having everything in a publication paper. I'm a bigger fan of making it machine-readable, AI-accessible. If you can do that, we'll find it. We'll figure out how to use it. Or even at this stage, like the search engines are amazing. Somebody will find it. (laughs) Just get it out there. Get it so that somebody can index it. So I think that's one big problem is um, it's related to that replicability. It's really more of the pressure to have neat stories. Another one I think is probably the real big one that I don't, what definitely needs a lot more attention is kind of that equity within the kind of global research enterprise so a lot of research is still heavily centered in the u.s western europe uh know, australia to an extent and i really think that that's not ideal right i think that just like everything else there is completely untapped potential and it's purely being driven even by technology right like we take advantage of a good internet connection that gives us a lot more capabilities to do work than somewhere else in the world that doesn't have that luxury. Um, So I think that's something to think very heavy about in terms of how research operates, which is, is it truly equitable? And our, and I say that both making sure that it is equitable, but also making sure that we as a global enterprise are rising.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any developed thoughts about how you might go about, getting science, the scientific enterprise to happen, you know, more in these other places. I mean, because I I share that concern. So there are lots of jokes about psychology being, you know, either the study of, of, you know, white lab rats or the study of, you know, two or three hundred college freshmen who volunteered for for a study in, you know, at Kansas or, or New York or someplace like that in the United States. And it's just, I, I sort of, I don't know about you, but I kind of hesitate to draw conclusions about all of humanity from a couple of hundred people in, in the Western world. But as, as you've said, I mean, science is difficult. It takes a lot of time and, and arguably the open science, um, uh, the, the open science framework would actually add a bit of overhead to that. So how do you encourage science to, to, blossom in these places while accounting for the fact that it just takes money to establish labs and money to buy microscopes and money to, to set these things up.
2: Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is it is right. It's investment, right? So you need, you're going to need to do it. There's investment in physical infrastructure, the way you had it as well as their investment in kind of that digital and training infrastructure that's going to be required. So that that's absolutely. So you're going to need to have funders that are able to invest in that and a system that's there to support it. Um, so ways to do it, the, the, probably the biggest barrier to it is back to what we were talking about before that incentive system. So in many ways, now we have to worry about exploitation, right? So if I'm in a country, let's say I'm, you know, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And I'm doing some huge population study, years of effort to collect painstakingly data from people all over the place that is really hard to get. I've got an incredibly rich data set now you want me to make that open so somebody else can take advantage of it, right? Take advantage of it, basically analyze it, get the paper, get the reward, yet you're left not getting the reward. So so that incentive system is not just the individual research, it's a global incentive system that's going on, right? Which is essentially what we get into is a really risky exploitation aspect. So in in the end of it, the the whole incentive system does have to shift to enable this. You can invest all you want, but if you're still not going to, unless you're gonna dump a lot into that investment, you're inevitably going to run back into the same problem. Somebody's collecting the data, if somebody gets access to it and they just publish it, they analyze it, they're the ones that get the reward, even though there was a lot of effort that went into it. So you should have equal rewards. In some ways, the data is being used and get analyzed multiple ways. To me, that's the ultimate contribution to science, but we're just not rewarding it at the moment. The other one would be good gap analysis, right? Some like really like that. There's a lot of good organizations that have done this. Bit localized, but if we think about what you were just using as an example, a good one would be, all right, well, yeah, maybe I don't have to say a claim about the the global, right? I doubt there's many claims that can go the whole globe. Hopefully they are, but it's really hard. But if we know it's centralized in say, just Midwestern United States, well, is that really the only place we care? Where else do we care? Where else do we wanna deploy this? So let's do very focused, you know, generalizability replication studies. If we're interested in saying, we think this could be useful in some location X, great, invest and make that possible. Um, so I think we need a little bit more of that, of like landscaping, not just the findings, but the characteristics of where the findings are coming from.
0: So you've you've talked a lot about uh, incentives. Um, how um, uh, how big a fan are you of like the the X Prize approach to things and offering like a ten million dollar prize to accomplish um, this one uh, this one thing? Um, it seems like uh, there's pluses and minuses to doing that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There are big pluses, right? You get massive innovation in that one spot because you create competition and in the healthiest way. I definitely get it. I think when you have like the quote unquote grand challenge, um, it's, it's okay. But to me, the risk you have is that if you do the grand challenges, you essentially only reward those that are capable of it. So you're just stuck rooted back in the same problem, right? So if I only reward you if you're capable of it and you come with that innovative technology, it's just like the rich keep getting richer is the risk we have there. Um, And you see that already, even with grants, you don't need to have an X price. The NIH grant is in some cases acting like that still. Um, So, so I get, I think it's a really good one. I just think it's one mechanism that can maybe counter having this investment strategy, right? So invest to get more more capabilities, more capacity. And then, yeah, use the XPRIZE when we're really confronted with something that we need massive uh, investment and we really want to spark and push new directions. I think that's a really nice way to do it because competitions actually, when used healthfully, is a great way. The only thing I'd like to see is make sure that the... Some mechanisms are built in so that we understand all the approaches that we're taking to, right? So sometimes that fanfare will do it, right? Everybody's saying what they're doing and you figure out whether they succeed or fail, what their approach was. And the reason I think that's important is because failure of achieving a result right. is just as important as success.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I, uh, I wonder sometimes if maybe we should just rethink the enterprise of, of science more generally. So episode 48, right before Joel Chan, we had Jeff Anders on, and he's at the Leverage Research Institute. And they've been doing a lot of study of the history of science. So like when electricity began to be studied scientifically, like how did people go about doing this? And what he found was incredibly, one, one of the ways they replicate things, but they would just send out science kits. They would just send it like we did this chemistry experiment. You can buy this and do it yourself. And you just get like, mass citizen science, all these people just replicating this experiment. And I wonder if there might just be a way to sort of usefully harness that. I mean, you don't don't want people building their own, uh, you know, weaponized smallpox or or doing, you know, dangerous chemistry experiments or anything like that. But maybe for certain fields, it would make sense. And he and I I actually went back and forth on even psychological experiments, like introspection. Is there a way to formalize that so that you can get sort of useful insights out of it? And if nothing else, it seems like a, a fruitful approach. I wonder if you've given any thought to that.
2: No, not to that. That's a really interesting approach. I mean, I'm a big. Fan. I do like citizen science, especially those like directed projects. It's amazing what you can accomplish. So what it reminds me though is um, we had this thought experiment, not alone in this, of thinking about science the right way. It's Back to your like, you know, where am I looking for my my keys? Where the flashlight is? Right. I'm trying to figure out a way to create communities where it's this shared goal, right? So the way I like to think about, you know, a lot of the research we do is it's I'm walking into a room completely black. There's something in there that I need to find, but I only get to ever walk in like one step at a time and then then touch something. So if I do that alone, I'm never going to find it. I mean, unless I'm really lucky. Right. So why reward me for finding it? The path there is more important. So what you really want to say is, okay, if you walk in the room and you didn't find anything, can you tell the next person what they did? So that way you globally will achieve, achieve that process. Right. So some way to gamify the sharing of your step Right versus the glory of who finds the like the golden right, key right. at the end, um, and again, I don't know. I don't know how you do. It. I mean, that's that gets back to that like kind of how you shift the culture towards recognizing that it's not really what you find; it's it's the questions that you ask that you want to reward. But I do like you know thinking about how you can gamify it to the point where you have many. Because really, what you want is many hands on deck. That's right. the best way to accomplish something.
1: I, I wonder if there's a way to use the blockchain or non-fungible tokens or something to reward gathering of data sets. And this is a, it's it's sort of a a half-baked thought that I haven't really uh, spent much time fleshing out, but it does seem like these technologies are geared to solve, to, to fill a hole that has this sort of shape where you've got incentives that don't work correctly and it's kind of hard to tr- trace attribution and the people who gathered the data don't really get the credit. It's just whoever came in and scooped it and ran a, a cool regression on it and they get published in Cell or Nature instead of the people who did all the the sort of grunt work. I, I don't know, like maybe there, maybe it's insoluble with, with the way we're currently approaching it, but it, just, it seems like blockchain would somehow or another be a good fit for that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. There are a lot, I see a lot of spin-up companies trying this in different ways. It, it, you know, it's interesting to think about it more as this community engagement approach versus what some approaches I've seen is just to try to replace publications with it. The risk I see if you're just replacing publications with it, if you're just saying, "Oh, that's that's what it is," it's just you know, you cite the paper, then then you're really competing with an embedded system. So good luck uh, trying to change that. I think what you have to do is you have to literally upend it, but you have to have this interesting value proposition to it of you know, what's what do I what do I get out of it, and how do I get rewarded for it. Um, and so again, if you can come up with a system that's contained, even if it's just a small slice, that's willing to reward on that, um, I think I think that'd be really cool. Uh, yeah, blockchain's it's an interesting one. I've not seen a good proposal yet that's like I think held, but I do I do agree with your assessment.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what's your your overall thinking about our intellectual property system that we have today? Um, because uh, it seems like most researchers have kind of a love hate relationship with it.
2: Yeah, no, it's a really interesting one. Um, I've chatted a, a lot with some folks at, at uh, some institutions that kind of, you know, are in, involved in trying to do that dissemination. I, I'm a, so I'm a big fan, I'm not against, you know, private approaches into things. I think there's a reason we need it, right? We, we've tried and have not succeeded in being able to have truly public funded, like large trials and and, and drug discovery. You need to have some private investment in that. But yeah, the, the whole IP thing, especially in the academic realm is a real interesting twist. And I think the, the big one to me is that we need to find a way to recognize and reward when it happens in some way and capacity. If it doesn't, if it's not fruitful that you still need to kind of kick it back out to the open, kind of the open community. Uh, what I mean by that is I think I've seen good examples of somebody pursuing uh, and getting a patent within their property. Actually, I was actually involved in one. Nobody goes and gets it. And so then it's locked away. The institution has it with no seller. And so what they really want to do is say, OK, well, that yeah, was a cool idea. We tried it, but it's not nobody's buying. So if you want to advance it, the best thing to do is to release it, get it back out into the wild. And that's the friction that I see the biggest one, which is how do you get to this point where you protect the attempt at it, right? With all the rigor that you want, but if it doesn't, if it's not fruitful, how do you get that escape hatch? So you pop back into that open aspect. And, you know, what I just gave a talk recently on, and I need to do a little bit more um, thinking in this space, which is the intersection of open science in that early stages with open innovation over in the applied stage. And I find that intersection is kind of interesting to think about, right? Like innovation itself has kind of shifted over the years from a very close to more open aspect, right? Allowing these kind of influxes back and forth between open source,
1: the rise of open source software. and that. Yeah, later exactly.
2: Later. Yeah. And you see that all over the place, right? Like it's definitely become the point where you don't have to worry about having all the knowledge within one institute. You actually are going to start to crowdsource it. And what you're looking for is your position within it. What is your take and how do you basically not collect the best team? How do you utilize the best ideas to get to the best path? To me, that's the same thing. How do we bring that down and have that marry well with open science? And I think IP sits right at the intersection of that, especially with the academic to market approach. How do you make it so that you can still have IP as a source of dissemination Yet let it freely go away if commercialization is is not the viable path.
1: It sounds like you're describing a smart contract, an Ethereum smart contract, where like if you manage to come up with a way to to make this viable, very good. If not, it goes back to the the public domain. Yeah. So it, it would take something more sophisticated than I think what is on offer today. But I, I don't want to make this a whole blockchain thing. But it it really seems like there's there there could be some fruitful work in this direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask you if, uh, just sort of to take it in a separate direction, whether or not there are fundamental meta scientific concepts you've discovered, and I know that a lot of what you work on is reproducibility and incentives, um, but but I'm very interested in just the overall structure of science and how the different fields interface and ways of talking about them productively, and I just wonder if you have done any thinking in that direction, if there are you know if there are just like common concepts that crop up across every scientific field you look at, or if it really is sort of bespoke and, uh, unique to each one. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on sort of the overview of, of science?
2: Yeah, no, you're talking to the wrong person. If I say something, it's going to be foot and mouth on this one. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't have, I haven't thought about that enough. It's a really good question, but I have no you know why just to say kind of the wrong thing. I think though I'll say one thing and I don't think I'm sticking. You my get foot one in
1: pass. You, you can pass yeah. once in the conversation.
2: Once, and I'll give you. I'll give you a little. Bit, this, this is, panel, this is one is. Um, I do think that many, many, many fields are more similar than researchers think they are, right? And that includes subfields or completely disparate fields, right? So, I, and I say that mostly from experience now, right? I can talk to a psychologist or an economic, somebody from economics or a political scientist or sociologist a lot more comfortably than i think i used to and it's partly because we there is a shared language that we have and that shared language really is the scientific method it it is it is what we learned way way back when we first learned about research what changes dramatically is how we apply it and what and what we believe is necessary to kind of achieving our knowledge gains so i think it starts to get bespoke a little bit in terms of like well what do i what do i value in terms of my you know application of it but i do think that that's still for better, for worse, the overarching theme we have, which is we still can use some words quite interchangeably and comfortably with each other, right? Here's my hypothesis, um, right? Here's my conclusion. I think it's that's about the extent that I've ever seen it, and it makes it easy because you realize that those fundamental problems exist regardless, right? We all publish, we know what that means.
1: You might like uh, Paul Rosenblum's book on computing. So I read it years and years ago, and it got me kind of thinking about the overall structure of science. and, and The thesis of his book is actually that. Comp- uh, computing should be counted as a field of science, and that it is the fourth great field of science, the others being the physical sciences, the life sciences, and the social sciences. But in the course of developing and defending that thesis, he lays out a couple of just really remarkable concepts. Like he talks about a, a meta science expression language and uh, relational architectures for cataloging how different sciences relate to each other. So you could have uh, like a field that's an implementation of another field, like it takes the abstractions and turns them into kind of concrete. So arguably, physics. Might be a more abstract layer of chemistry and and um, but sometimes they just interface in useful ways. Uh, so if if you're simulating agents, that's not quite the same thing, but it's it's a different way that two fields uh, like computation and psychology can can relate. And it just it really kind of, sparked this interest in me and, and i've over the years over the eight years since i read the book i've just returned to that that thought repeatedly and kind of fleshed it out in different ways so if it's something you're interested in, it's like the first three chapters of the book you don't have to finish the rest of it but that that's a really useful way of thinking about it and he's probably somebody worth talking to honestly if if that's something that's you're really
2: cool into. are you familiar with um a lot of push at least in the life sciences towards automation of laboratory experiments um like Emerald Cloud is a good example of one. Have yes, you followed
1: any? I I am not uh, I'm not familiar with the most recent efforts, but we I think it was episode six we had Jared Bultima on and he was at DataRobot. They're building a, a platform for automated data science. But we spent a lot of time talking about just automated science proper, like the um, the uh, what, Adam the the Welsh the the Welsh Life Sciences Lab that that they fed all this yeast genomics data and they basically had a robotic apparatus inside the lab that, that took the yeast genomics data, found a couple of gaps in it, and then designed its own experiment. and carried it out and discovered new knowledge. And and the only human interventions were when they came and took the waste out or they gave it the chemicals it asked for. So I'm not really familiar with where the most recent efforts are, but yeah, that's also something I've been tracking for a while.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. I think it's really fascinating to to start thinking that way because it upends a little bit of the way that you can start to approach research. So if you think about, especially in like bench research, molecular, um, even to cell biology, biochemistry, a lot of it's still the the human is the disposable entity, right? I have to pipette in, I have to think of the experiment, pipette it, do all the actions and remove the waste. Um, And I can't, I can only do as many as I can pipette, right? Yeah. I can get close to robotics, but I'm still quite limited. When you start to think about like ECL transcriptics, another one, like there's a lot that's been going on the last couple of years that I find interesting because they basically are shifting and making it so that it becomes more coding, right? It becomes more that you can just codify everything. And I think the, they're doing it, I think, from a good market sense, which is, look, now don't, don't worry about it yourself. We can do it a lot cheaper. We can oh, you know, kind of do it a la Amazon. But I find more fascinating is where you were going with it, which is, okay, this allows two huge possibilities. One is you now get to do a lot more and start to really think about exploitation of that from an automated sense. Not, not automated doing it, automated like design, yep. right? you allow to have like machine learning approaches and AI on top of that. And that's really going to unlock a lot of potential
1: hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I read that another group of scientists were able to discover Newton's laws of motion by just feeding tons and tons and tons of physics data into a set of algorithms. And it, and it toyed with it and found out what relations predict other, you know, like, like how can it model the system over time? And what it came up with was roughly Newton's three laws of motion, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it, it right. took a day, you know two days, something like that. And I, I mean, I, I'm a machine learning engineer, so I know damn well that uh, you know, algorithms don't remove bias. Like if your data are biased and, and, uh, and your procedures aren't good, you can introduce other bias. But plausibly, if done correctly, it could ameliorate one source of bias where, where people kind of look at the results and are like, eh, that's pretty close. If we just massage this a little bit, we can get P.049 or whatever, and we, we can get this thing published. Uh, it, it at least could patch up one hole in the process.
2: Yeah, yeah. As long as it's not a, a black box, that's going right. to be the key there. It's definitely been a lot of issues there with a lot of black boxes going A billion going
1: parameter neural network. Something neural goes on here, and no one has any idea how it works, but it spits out the right <laughs> answer. Yeah, that's that's terrifying. Um, I wanted to ask just a, a simple question. Given that you spend all this time thinking about science protocols and incentives, who's doing the best science? Are there any exemplars that you look at? Like, no, those people—they're doing the best stuff, and you can trust what comes out of that lab.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't actually, to be honest with you. I don't think that that's necessarily the right thing to do. I, what I find more interesting are certain groups that are doing some pretty clever approaches in terms of trying to make more, more of their process open. Um, so there are, I can try to send you some names of some folks, um, but good examples would be Large consortiums that are willing to just essentially stream their data. Um, So, a lot of there's good, some cool chemical groups that are doing that, right? They basically just stream their data live. And I find that really fascinating to think about how science can operate, right? It's not let's wait for the paper, right? It's the data as it's coming out, like live stream, if you want to go at it. Well, Stephen
1: Wolfram is doing that as well with uh, his fundamental physics project. And I I haven't really I haven't watched any of the streams. I don't really know exactly what's going on there, but he's an unbelievably intelligent guy. He he spent his whole life thinking about cellular automata and how to model complex systems and how, you know, simple rules give rise to complicated emergent behavior and all all of this stuff. And, And now he's working on a fundamental theory of physics and somehow or another in, in a way that I'm not really familiar with he's live streaming a lot of that like a lot of the just the processing and the math and stuff it's you can sit in and kind of watch it happening in real time which I think is also very interesting
2: yeah yeah I think that I think we're gonna hopefully see more and more of that in research which is this fear of of scooping or this fear of waiting for the narrative and think instead it'd be a, a lot more useful as you start to have more live streaming of data right and again it's not as if it's a, some data is going to be very, you know, terribly exciting to to watch, but I think it's going to be able to open up more, more doors. Right. right. Uh, yeah. You, you could be the one designing it and, and driving the show, but somebody else might quickly take it at any point.
1: Yeah. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. We, we've been working on a lot of um, theories on, on how to predict the future. And uh, there's, uh, what I refer to as different anchor points in the future that, um, as an example, any emerging technology, you're going to have a number of what we call firsts, uh, people who want to be first or go first or uh, do, somehow get their name in, in lights because they've got the headlines of, of accomplishing something first. And so with each new technology that comes out, there's a, a system of going through and asking the right questions, and you can actually uh, start to map out these these first that are yet to be uh, developed um and then there's uh, similar to that there's this uh theory of attractionary futuristics, which is um there are there are anchor points in the future that we're somehow drawn towards like for forever we've been drawn towards having a flying car to, to land a, a man on mars um the first space hotel and things like that long. and so so once, once there is enough uh, literature on something, it creates enough volume of interest and we're somehow drawn towards those endpoints. Um, that, I, that I think is, is uh, fascinating because it, uh, it, it kind of gives us some of the things that are going on kind of non-verbally in the background in people's heads that uh, kind of change the equation
2: yeah do you follow any of the we are using the scene in that score project i was telling you about um, people i'm not going to say researcher because it's really anybody predicting whether an experiment can replicate or not like this forecasting do you have you talked to anybody or follow any of that i uh
1: i, I, I follow well I, I don't really follow it but i'm sort of aware of Metaculus or predict it or, or a couple of other platforms for things like that i I assumed that somebody was probably applying it in a scientific context and not just elections and stuff like that. But I haven't really looked into it specifically.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's built off all that. Yeah. We're actually using it in SCORE. This this program with DARPA is to layer it because the empirical effort, I think it's where you're getting at, right? This empirical work of collecting the data is the most laborious. It's the hardest, takes the most effort um and sometimes it's not even necessary right like you could maybe predict it beforehand or or simulate it if you can get to that point with enough data um, and enough modeling um but but it's been interesting in this project to see at least within the social sciences how far it's gone in terms of different approaches at kind of figuring out if you can forecast the outcome of a result um and then, and then on top of it, can you use that human forecasting, what, whatever is going on in the reasoning there, to then basically leverage that for you know an algorithm that can that can predict it, right? Oh so it's God. not just based off of like, okay, great, I see. I'm not just going off citation, right? It's probably the worst thing to go off of. Instead, I'm trying to figure out like, well, what was the reasoning behind why you believe that's going to replicate? So that's the real interesting problem because that merges, I think, the kind of psychology of how we draw conclusions from research into, can we mirror that? Can we actually kind of automate that in some sense?
1: Yeah, I actually, once you started talking about it, I think there was a, a prominent member of that effort that we tried to get on the podcast a while back. He, I remember reading a blog post where he was talking about this, and I think that phrase the median study shouldn't exist and the median researchers shouldn't be doing. It. I think it actually came from a blog post he wrote in response to going through like 5,000 social science papers or something like that. And he, he was one of the people that scored really, really well. He was, was one of the, I don't know, one of those the super forecasters or something like that. And he was just like, it's garbage guys. It's a dumpster fire. I, I can't believe Yeah, I know bad. what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's actually part of, that's part of this project. Yeah. They, they skimmed through it. Um, yeah, that caused, that cost a good little stir. Uh, <laughs> On that, that approach. Yeah, I mean, so the re- the thing that's interesting is, so there's been a number of these. And that's why I use the word like, be careful what you use this kind of expert. There's been some groups that have said, okay, we're going to see if you can forecast the replicability of some psychology experiments. Um, and they did that, obviously, with experts, right? Okay, other psychologists, what what are you picking up on? What are you using? And then some people followed up with just anybody. Can anybody do this? Right. You don't have to have the expert background and they're just as good. Honest. So it really makes, so <laughs> makes you wonder two things. One is, do you need expertise? What does that mean to be an expert? I hope that's true. Or is it, is it back to like, Oh my gosh, is it really that easy? Like it's yeah, so binary, yeah. like yay or nay.
1: Well that that's actually, a, I think a general feature of efforts to find people who can forecast. And this is another thing I really haven't gotten too into, but my understanding of Philip Tetlock's work on super forecasters is that actually it's, it's pretty hard to figure out who's going to be a super forecaster. Cause often it's just like Becky, the pharmacist who, you know, has no grad school or anything, but, but she just reads the paper and, and somehow has a knack for figuring out uh, probabilistically what, what the future is going to look like. And I think that's just sort of an interesting problem is that like the meta problem of figuring out who's going to forecast well is really hard to solve. Like we have no idea why some people just have a way of kind of looking out at the world and, and making sense of the chaos.
2: Right. No, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I think what they have is just a really good like hedging of how, how certain or how more importantly, how uncertain something is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be It'd be really nice to be able to do that kind of any discipline. Right. Could you imagine like, you know, being able to kind of figure that out before you ran trials and be like, oh, well, I can kind of figure out like the likelihood of this. So maybe, maybe it's like I minority
1: won't report, but for science, like, no, no, the, the, the oracles say this won't work. So you have no funding for you <laughs> talk about an incentive problem. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you is whether or not you buy that science is becoming less productive over time. Uh, you have this sort of general narrative of, all the low hanging fruit having been picked and that from here on out, it's just kind of a slog up longer and longer Hills for, uh, for, for insights that are more and more remote. Uh, but it occurs to me that possibly it's just a matter of fixing the incentive But like, like maybe we're just approaching the entire thing wrong and, and all of this bureaucracy and nonsense is sort of accreted around the process and that's what's holding everything up. So where do you come down on that?
2: Yeah. So it's a, it's a really good question. So I, I hope, that we're not at the point where this is, this is it. We, we've hit the, we've hit a, a an point. Where that's all the knowledge, gonna, all of it. That's it it's all the knowledge. It's really hard now. We're like grabbing at it. I don't, don't actually, I think part of this is, is a bit of an optics as well. So we keep investing more in certain areas. And I think the, just like anyone else, the more I invest in something, the more I expect out of it. So I think part of this is a bit of like the ins and outs of what we're doing within our research. So it might, it might seem like we've picked over everything, but I think really it's just the way that we've invested in the research. So I do believe more that we can essentially squeeze more out if we're more rigorous, right? You don't have to do as much, but if you do it a little little more smartly, maybe you do less of it, but higher quality. Maybe you do figure out with whatever mechanisms, manual or maybe automated one day, what I shouldn't do as much as what I should do. I think that's actually what we're going to start to see more. I think we're just tricking ourselves quite a bit. And I think it's really easy to do that with with you know that reward system that's just like, give me more papers. Well, if you want more papers, you'll get lots more papers. Right. If you're not, if that's not the question you're asking, if you actually want to push knowledge and push innovation and push something that's going to actually be tangible, well, our incentives—we're just asking the wrong question. So we're producing lots and lots of this object that we don't care that much about, or at least not in the way that we think we do, right? So it's the same thing. If we want to cure mice. We're getting better at it, better every day. Right? <laughs> uh, don't even know if we're good at that. I think most well, so of those aren't. Even but if that's hmm. not trying to ask, like, that's the problem that we have. So I think the investment strategy, I think it's just, again, like a bit of an optics, right? I think we're investing, but maybe not quite in the right place.
0: Okay. Yeah, there's a statistic that we've bounced around a little bit. It's that uh, um, there there are several quotes in articles that say that the world's base of knowledge is now doubling every 12 hours. And um, uh, first, first of all, I've concluded that that's just simply wrong. Uh, And, (laughs) and so so then it gets to the definition of well what what are we talking about with knowledge here because right. there's there's nothing that is you know an eternal um uh, exponential growth curve i mean there's nothing grows forever like that so <laughs> um so we're we're trying to sort through okay what what actually constitutes knowledge and is it fake knowledge is it truth is it just information is it um is it just a garbage statistic that's floating around out there that's easy to quote. Uh, uh, and we, we figured that we would ask you this question so that because you have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I do not have all the answers, um, but I do, I
0: do
2: like the, uh, um, that, that analogy, right? It makes me think very much of like, it doesn't grow exponentially, not unless, you know, there's something that can enable it, right? You think of bacteria, bacteria, like you can see this, they have these beautiful curves, right? And they can hit an exponential phase, but it doesn't last very long. They eventually deplete everything that they have in terms of the nutrients. Um, right. So it's really interesting to think about it. And, you know, I think I couldn't agree more with, with the knowledge. And to me, actually, the bigger one is going to be not so much the knowledge production. It's where... I think what we're really getting to and we've been there for a while is uh, bigger and bigger data mm-hmm. and not bigger and bigger data the way that i like some people say it which is like genomic. genomics is a good one all the omics data that's big data too don't get me wrong to me the bigger data is the complete wealth of scientific knowledge that's there which is all these tidbits we're trying to sort out exactly what you put your finger on right which is well of everything that's there even the, the the long tail of small data that non-big data like the non you know genomic data which ones of those are highly valuable. And most of those are probably not very good on their own, but when you start to like couple them and cut them across, you get some really valuable insights. And I think that's actually, especially in my own field, I see a ton of this, it's the same thing. Maybe the experiment's not very good if I'm just studying a bunch of like undergrads at Madison, Wisconsin, but if I start to actually understand what they're asking and I can figure out, well, now that's the question I want. Now, how many other are related to that concept? maybe I've actually accomplished more than I think I have. I just don't know how to put it together. Right. Um, and I think that's actually the the bigger challenge that we have, which is we're producing lots of data, but it's incredibly disconnected from themselves. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, well, do you have any uh, closing thoughts for us? Yeah. What gives you hope? <laughs> that, that that was a popular closer uh, for, for a while. Yeah. What gives you hope?
2: Yeah. So I think what gives me hope is, is that, research and science is still amazing where we've accomplished everything around us with the resources that we've put into it. Right. So it's not that the enterprise, the social, the system of science itself as it's a social system is not broken in, in my sense, not in the sense that we're not still making great discoveries. I don't know, probably not 12 hours, but at some rate, what gives me hope is that we can push that even farther without having to worry about the thought of, oh, I just need to invest more. I need to train more. I think we can also train better. So what gives me hope is that That experience I had as a grad student where I had to spend months and months and months trying to figure out what somebody had just done, and I could talk to them, and they couldn't tell me the answer. I had to kind of work through it myself that the next person doesn't have to do that. So that's what gives me hope, is that that will make it go faster. If we can cut down, hopefully, you know, any scientist in the future, the time it takes them to kind of figure out the details.
1: I love it. Thanks so much, Tim.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you.